I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Joel chapter 2. Joel is one of the, what we call the minor prophets. Uh, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 200, I'm sorry, 761, 761. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Beloved saints, this is our God's word. Let us uh, give our attention to the reading of it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? And so ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. The heavens declare your glory, O God, and the skies above proclaim your handiwork. They pour out speech by day. They reveal knowledge by night. Your will is perfect. And your word is perfect. Your word, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. Your precepts are right and they bring joy to the heart. Your commandments are pure. They bring light to the eyes. Your word is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. And so I ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, might be acceptable in your sight, our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Our uh, declaration of pardon, our assurance of God's grace this morning came from Psalm 51, verse 17, uh, one of perhaps the best-known verses in Scripture. Uh, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Uh, Sounds so beautiful, so poetic, especially when we remember the context. This is Psalm 51. This is what David, that great hero of the faith, wrote when, when he had fallen into such gross sin, murder, Adultery. And here this hero, this this larger-than-life king, confesses that he is broken. And we see beauty. We see humility. We all want humility. Well, at least we all want to appear humble. (laughs) But there's that other word, that, that word broken. And that... That sounds hard. 
That sounds painful. But brokenness and humility, they go hand in hand. You can't truly have one without the other. If you want to be humble, you will be, you must be broken. It's been a busy week for me traveling to Presbytery, and so I decided to, to rather than rush things, take a break from Luke, uh, and we'll return to it uh, in a week or so. But today I thought we'd revisit a passage we looked at a few years ago from a book, the book of Joel. And it deals with these issues. Now Joel is a short book, quite short. Uh, It's one of what we call the minor prophets written to Israel during a time of uh, rebellion and disobedience. It opens with a somber warning of judgment, but it does so with a purpose. At its core, the book of of Joel is a call to repentance. Uh, It's a... It's a book written as a plea to God's people to turn from their sin. And it's written with an offer of forgiveness. Biblical repentance, true repentance, is something that that can't be faked. It's not merely external. It's deep. It's internal. It's it's thorough. And, And I think that can scare us. I think it does scare us. I've been struck at how many times over and over we as Christians struggle to repent. And yet, as is often the case, what scares us the most is often the only thing that can help. And so I, I want to pause this morning and, and revisit this, this passage and, and look at true repentance and see uh, really something quite simple, and it's this. True repentance admits Guilt and responsibility yields all rights and hopes for a grace which cannot be deserved, uh, that is not deserved. That's what repentance is. It, It admits guilt and responsibility, it yields rights, and it hopes for something it doesn't deserve. That's what repentance is, and that's what we want to look at today. And Uh, As we do, I want to also address why true repentance scares us. And I do mean true repentance. I think we're all good at, at faking repentance sometimes, something outward that resembles repentance but comes up short of what the Bible has in mind. Uh, and so what is it that scares us of, of true, deep, and thorough repentance? Uh, I've got three things I think scare us about that. And the first is that it's humbling. When you truly repent you are not saying sorry that the other person was hurt or offended. You are saying you're sorry that you did something wrong, something sinful. True repentance never apologizes for how other people took something. True repentance takes responsibility for failure. And can we be honest? We like to do things well. We don't like to do things badly. We like to believe that we are pretty good, maybe better than others. We like to look good. We like to be respected. We like to be admired. And we don't like it when we blow it. We don't like to admit that we've blown it. And we don't like others to know that we've blown it. I don't like those things. 
And so true repentance is is an assault on my pride, and it's an assault on yours as well. And while we all know that pride is bad, and and more often than not, the reality is uh, we we know that our pride needs a good assault. (laughs) The truth is that it hurts when we're taken down a notch. But true repentance places what is right before what is comfortable. It places the honor of others before our own honor, our own sense of pride. And so it's humbling and it's hard to be humbled. That's the first impediment to true repentance. The second, and more, uh, more than this, I think, is even that, that true repentance is incriminating. What do I mean that? When you admit that you have done something wrong, you admit that you deserve the consequences for doing what was wrong. Now, this is most obvious like in, in, a, in a legal case when somebody's committed a crime. If they're going to plead guilty, they have to accept that this crime might uh, uh, deserve certain fine or prison time even, or maybe both, And so you have to count the cost when you admit to wrongdoing because there's going to be consequences. And that's no less true when it comes to our sins that aren't criminal in nature. To admit that you've done something wrong or say you've taken something that isn't yours, to admit that means repaying it. Admitting to your parents that you broke the rules means a potential loss of freedom. Or privileges. Violation of marriage vows might mean the loss of that marriage. True repentance scares us because it admits that there might be consequences and that they are deserved and we have to accept them. And that's most specifically true when it comes to God. He tells us what the wages of rebellion, what the cost of sin against him is. He says it's death, and he doesn't just mean physical death. It means for all eternity. And, and we fear repentance because it means accepting culpability, responsibility. We fear repentance because it means incriminating ourselves and saying, whatever comes because of this, I have to accept. And that's hard. The third thing that I think scares us about repentance is that it yields all rights. When you truly repent, you don't just humbly admit that you are wrong and that you deserve appropriate consequences, but you acknowledge that you have no right to be shown kindness or mercy. And I think that's what's most truly terrifying about repentance because it leaves us naked and powerless before the one we wronged with no leverage. If the person you wronged decides to impose the appropriate consequences or punishment against you and you object, you're not actually repentant. If you say, that's not fair, I said I'm sorry, you're not actually repenting. If you throw their sin back in their face, well, you're not any better, you're not truly repentant. Because true repentance acknowledges that it has no right to be treated well. It acknowledges that any punishment that is received is deserved and just. It claims no power. It yields all rights.
if a husband is unfaithful or abusive, true repentance means saying, you have every right to leave me. And if owning my sin means helping you do that, that's what I will do. And that's terrifying. And yet repentance like that is what the Lord is talking about when he says repent. That's what honors him and it's what terrifies us. Now, we do need to be clear, uh, repentance only scares us when it's us being called to repent. Uh, We're quite fine, uh, in fact, very comfortable, even delighted when others are called to repent. (laughs) And I think sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to sometimes slip into this idea that really uh, repentance is something that really non-Christians need to be called to. We think that it's something we did when we became Christians, and boy, aren't we glad it's behind us. Now, to be sure, part of evangelism is calling people to repent. When when Peter preached that famous sermon at Pentecost, and they said, Brother, what must we do to be saved? His response was, You repent and you believe. Our, our catechism rightly calls repentance, repentance unto life, because it is, it is part of what it means to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. But that does not mean that our relationship to repentance ends once we are Christians. And yet, sadly, I think repentance is often easier for non-Christians than it is for those who are 10 years into their Christian journey. It seems that we, of all people, should know that we are sinful and we need grace, but I think sometimes we don't want to admit we're wrong or we've we've struggled so many times we don't want to admit that we, we fell victim to the same sin one more time. We just don't want to admit it. And yet we should know better than others that we can't keep God's law We of all people should know that repentance should be a way of life, not a one-time event. And yet Christians struggle to repent. I have seen it time and time again in counseling husbands and wives and parents and children and friends. That struggle... And yet, to whom is this passage addressed? This passage, this call to repentance, is written not to non-Christians, not those outside. It's, it's written to the people of God, to the church. Verse 12 says, return to me. Not come, but come back. And that uh, really comes out in verse 14. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Uh, that's the temple mount, the center of Israel's worship and life. They are called to assemble, verse 16, as the congregation, as the church. They are, verse 17, God's people. They're called to repent. And that repentance is a, that called repentance is addressed to the people of God, not those outside. Not that there's not an appropriate time for that. But this is for Believers. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's God's people who continually get themselves into trouble through history, constantly drifting away, following down dangerous roads, and God is continually calling them back, calling them to repentance, saying, return to me. 
Peter says it this way, judgment begins with the house of God. If we're going to talk about repentance, we should talk about it ourselves first. Then we'll talk about others. Uh, This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, remove the log from your eye before you deal with the speck in somebody else's. This is where we start. Ourselves first, then others. God's people, the church, must be called to repentance over and over and over again. And sometimes that repentance is personal and it's individual. There are times where you've sinned against another, and that might be your husband, your wife, your child, your parent, your friend, your sibling. It might be someone else in the church. It might be someone outside the church. It might just be God. But when you sin, when you fail another, it's always right to repent. Even if that person sinned against you as well, God calls you to worry more about your sin than the sin of the others against you. No excuse, no qualifications. Go and repent. And yet, while I'm sure that certain individuals uh, were included with with what our passage addressed, they're, they're by no means primary. Look again at verses 15 and 17. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. These are all corporate, uh, group words. This is a call to group repentance, corporate repentance. The whole congregation is being called to repent because they have corporately engaged in sin. Verse 16, even the nursing infants are included. This is no different than what we saw when we looked at the book of Revelation in those, the chapters 2 and 3 and the letters to the seven churches, and those churches that were were struggling the worst uh, were called to repent, and that warning was, lest you become a synagogue of Satan, that you as a church can, can become apostate corporately as a group and become a false church. History is filled with stories of churches that have corporately excused each other's sins too long, over and over, and drifted into apostasy. Churches that once uh, loved and proclaimed the truth have become completely devoid of the truth. But this idea of of group guilt and and corporate confession uh, rubs us Americans the wrong way. We're individualists. We despise the idea of being responsible for anyone but ourselves. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. It's, it's as if we sing in harmony with Cain, the chorus, Am I my brother's keeper? And yet God somehow is just not impressed by our rugged individualism. God says things like, Though we are many, we are one body, and individually members one of another. Our God says things like, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our our God says, if anyone is caught among you in sin, you who are spiritual, go to him and and correct him in a spirit of gentleness. He says, you're in it together. And so repentance needs to not just be individual, but also corporate. Uh, Remember a few years ago, uh, our sister denomination, the, the Presbyterian Church in America, felt convicted over over the the history uh, of uh, excusing slavery within the Presbyterian Church. 
and corporately said, even though this has been, been 150 years in the past, we have never made a statement repenting of that. And, it, and people stood up and said, I wasn't there, I didn't do it. They said, we, our church did. And if we want to accept the good parts of our legacy, we also need to confess the bad parts. I, I read a book a couple years ago from a pastor who had been called uh, to a church that was going through hard times. And as he, as he got into the labors, he realized that, that under the previous pastor and, and leadership there, there were many, many people in that community who had been hurt. And he could have said, well, that wasn't me. But instead... He, he made it his goal to find out every family in the, in the community that was wronged and go sit in their living room, look in them in the eye and say, I'm sorry. You deserve better. And what you endured was wrong. It's beautiful. Why isn't that more common? Why isn't corporate repentance a greater part of our lives. Now, in a way, that's what we do every week, right? We, we read the law together and we confess our sin together. But that shouldn't be the only place that takes place. Churches and presbyteries and denominations, we need to learn more how to repent together. But where does repentance leave us? What becomes of those who admit they failed, who incriminate themselves, admitting that they deserve whatever consequences come their way, who who lay down all their rights and defenses? Is there any hope for the repentant? And the answer is yes. Joel uh, tells us earlier, uh, when we repent and turn, God turns and leaves a sacrifice. to satisfy his own justice. Notice what verse 17 says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It's interesting because This is what God is telling them to do. He's giving them instructions for what to do as they repent. And he says, when you do, let the priest come into the temple and stand before the altar and and tell them to pray this to me. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not uh, your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the peoples say, where is their God? Now, now what they're echoing is what Moses actually prayed in Deuteronomy 9. He said this, O Lord, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness. Do not regard the stubbornness of the people or their wickedness of the, or their sin, lest the Egyptians say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land, that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Moses is saying this, that that their hope is not in how good they are, but in the promises of a faithful and gracious and kind God. And he's saying, our names aren't worth much, but if you don't redeem us, your name 
will be attacked and your name is worth defending. And so God teaches his people to pray not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of who he is and what he's done. Moses is saying, you are a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What will people say if you don't show us that love and faithfulness? And that's what God is telling the priests in the days of Joel to pray. He says, this is your hope. My goodness, my kindness, my grace, my mercy, my love. Isn't this what Jesus does for us? When it says, repent, and who knows, maybe the Lord will leave a sacrifice. Well, well, there were sacrifices in the Old Testament on the altar, but really, what is the sacrifice our Lord leaves for us? It's himself. He took on flesh and blood, and he came into this world, and he offered his, his life and his death in our place, so that when we repent, we might find mercy. And so, what Jesus says is, my life has been poured out as a drink offering for those who turn from their sin and trust, trust me. And I won't let people question my name by failing the people who trust in me. There's no way Jesus will allow his name to be blasphemed because he fails somehow to defend those and save those who call on him. Our comfort is not in what we deserve, but in the character of the God we follow. He is the one who defends the defenseless. He gives hope to the hopeless. He has mercy on the humble and the contrite. That being the case, why would you ever resist repentance? Why would you choose pride over over God's grace? Why would you choose to depend upon your own ability to advocate for yourself over Jesus' ability to advocate for you? Repentance is where we find true freedom. But as we said at the beginning, not all repentance is what it truly claims to be. So what does true repentance look like? First, it flows from sincere sorrow for sin. People prefer grand gestures to mourning. We'd rather buy flowers than to say, I've blown it, forgive me. We'd rather promise a special favor than say, I need mercy. Beloved, gifts aren't repentance. They're an abusive attempt to manipulate people saying, if I buy you something, will you put up with my mistreatment of you? That's not grace. Similar tactics are done in in grand gestures. But look at verse 13. Rend, tear your hearts, not your garments. This is referring to a practice of of tearing a garment as a sign of, of grief. And the people would use that as a grand gesture. Look at how sorry I am. Let me tear my garment. 
And, and what does God say? God says, no, no, it's your heart that needs to be torn, not your garment. I don't need a grand show. I need a broken heart. True repentance is a matter of a heart overcome with grief over sin. Outward displays of repentance, if they come, must flow from a truly sorrowful heart. Anything else is just a cheap imposter for repentance. It's when you have true sorrow for what you've done that, and not simply a fear of consequences that you'll be able to lay down those rights. That, that you'll only be, then you'll be able to stop posturing and simply ask for grace knowing that you don't deserve it. And here's what's most shocking. It's only when we lay down our rights that we can truly find mercy. This is true with God. We will never find His grace as long as we think we have leverage over Him. It's only when we say, I have no claim on your grace that we actually find his grace. And this is often true in human relationships as well. I've seen more than a few marriages end because the one who failed was not willing to relinquish his, his claim on that marriage. When a husband's abusive or unfaithful, he does not get to say, I said I'm sorry, why can't you forgive me? It's not like you don't sin too. And yet that's exact and, uh, it's exactly often the tactic that's taken. And it destroys any remaining hopes of reconciliation. The only way to truly be repentant and to show that is to admit that you forfeited any right. Anything you get back is a gift of mercy and grace. Undeserved. And so true sorrow yields all rights. True repentance also turns away from the sinful behavior and pursues righteousness. Note the word consecrate in verse 16. It means set apart. Uh, God is calling his people to come out of the world and be different. So urgent is this call that, that brides and grooms preparing for weddings are told to abandon their preparations in order to join the congregation in repenting. Grief over sin leads those who are repentant to pursue obedience and a changed life. If there's no change of life, if there's no fruit, it shows you that the, that the words did not reveal the true heart. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Repentance is, is a change of course. To repent is to turn away from the world and to follow God. And the temptation is to be scared by all of this and to say something like, if I truly admit how wrong I've been, if I incriminate myself and I give up every bit of leverage, what am I left with? And Jesus says, me. Remember, God's promise The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. You see, this is the great comfort of Scripture. It's when we we give up everything else that what we're left with is Jesus and his mercy and his grace and his love. Is it any surprise that each week we end at the Lord's table? 1 Corinthians 11 warns us against 
coming to this table in an unworthy manner. And it's sad that, that this has led many to think that they somehow have to convince God that they're worthy before they come. <laughs> but in the context, what was Paul addressing? He was addressing those who thought they belonged, that because they were more wealthy or, or, or whatever, that they deserved to be at the table. And Paul was basically saying, look, if you think you have a right to this table, don't come. If you realize and you confess that you have no claim on this table, the Lord says, come. It's beautiful. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful picture of what the gospel looks like and what it calls us to. Each week, it invites us to remember that that our standing and our worthiness comes in admitting that we have none of our own. We come not as those who have a claim on God's blessing, but but as those who weep and those who mourn and those who rend their hearts knowing that the Lord is gracious and he is merciful and he is slow to anger and our God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and that he relents over disaster and he leaves a sacrifice in its place that we might be reconciled to him. And please pray with me. Our gracious God, we know we've not kept your law and that we know what we deserve and that there's no use in trying to justify ourselves, no benefit in making excuses, that our only hope is to repent. Help us to make that a regular part of our lives, individually and corporately. Help us to learn humility and to learn contrition and to learn brokenness. And may we learn to take comfort in the grace that you alone offer and the hope that that you alone can give. May we find comfort in the salvation purchased by Jesus Christ. All of this we ask in his perfect name. Amen.